Well, as we get settled in and uh, get ready to look at John 21, sit there and think it's, uh, it is neat to see this time of year we get to see some people come in and, and uh, who we don't normally see a lot. And uh, I know tomorrow, you know, you're heading on a plane, Harry, back to England. Harry's been with us for three months from London, and you become one of us for sure. Everybody's talking funny now because of you. <laughs> All these euphemisms and everything. But, but anyway... Uh, we, uh, we've enjoyed having you around, man. So I tell you, as I, as I do look at this, uh, this scripture in John 21, we have been walking for nine months in the book of John. We have not missed one word. We started the year out in the book of Nehemiah, walked through, and then we hit uh, the book of John. And uh, we, we didn't give us a timeline. When are we going to stop? When are we going to end? Um, what are we going to do next? Not sure. Uh, we'll start Old Testament somewhere in January. We're going to just jump in the book there, and we'll walk through that. But I think it's, it's a good time in December to kind of catch our breath. You know, when you go from a, a four-month study to a nine, you know, or whatever, a three-month study, a nine-month study, let's just hold off a little bit before we, before we hit um, a, a new series. So anyway, we're just going to walk through some things in the next few weeks during Christmas. That'll be really interesting. So John 21 is a closing chapter. I don't know about you, but sometimes there are books I go to and I look at the very back of the book and I just want to see how did the thing end. And I don't know why I used to do that. I probably did that more when I was younger, just ADD. I don't know. We just wanted to see what was happening. In this particular case, you're going to see how the book of John is going to conclude. And it's going to conclude the same way it began, which is really stating a, a case for belief. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the only one that is not listed as a synoptic gospel. The other three synoptic gospels create a um, different viewpoint, vantage point. John is a deep study. I went, I went to, uh, I remember in New York, went, first time I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You know they have a bench generally in front of some of the pieces with the master pieces and, and the, the master artist would, would, would have this incredible detailed um, Painting, and you'd walk up, and there would be a there would be a, a bench right here, and you would sit on the bench. Sometimes some of these people would. I always kind of was enamored with people who would sit on the bench and look at artwork. I'm thinking, how intelligent are they? How cultured are these people? Because I just couldn't get it. Well, I finally mustered the courage to walk up to this lady who was looking at this piece of art, and she she just kind of had a smile on her face, and I said, "What are you looking at? What do you see that I don't see?" She said, "Well, I'm glad you asked." And she started explaining. She said, "You can see the face here, and this person is excited about this. And you can see the tension here." She knew the historical background. And by the time I walked away, after about five minutes, two things happened. I could detect her passion, and I got a clear understanding. What was otherwise just a, a, a vignette now became life. I mean, this piece really just came full of life. And whenever you go to art museums, you have to be very careful to get around the docents because they can offer free tours everywhere. You know, And if, I don't care if it's the Ringling Museum in Sarasota or you go to the Vatican – it is like if you want a drink of water, they're going to open the fire hydrant. I mean, you have just given them unleashed two hours to go so detailed. And you're thinking, the first time, I'm, can y'all remember when we went to the Ringling Museum on an outing and that lady came alongside? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, this will be 45 minutes. She said, that's easy. It's a piece of cake. We're going to round the corner, see some things. No, we sat in one place, pretty much. <laughs> and we sat there, and we sat there. And it was the longest 45 minutes of my life. <laughs> If I'm ever terminal, I'm going to the Ringling Museum. I'm going to feel like I'm living forever down there. So I, I just remember thinking, she sees something. John sees a lot that the other guys don't see. It's a different vantage point. Have you ever been around people that just kind of paint with words when they speak? This is John. John 
mentions things others don't. The great I am statements, those are only found in the book of John, not the synoptic gospels. You see um, 170 plus times are the names Jesus and Christ mentioned. A hundred times is the word believe mentioned. So his entire focus is that you and I would believe. So before we hit John 21, I want to take you to the last two verses of John chapter 20. The reason I want to take you there is because for me, these verses look like they could be the end. So look at the last two verses of John chapter 20, and it reads here in verse 30. I'll read it for you. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31 reads, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you were going to end a story, you could do it right here. It's done. It's over. Walk away. Everything's been said. But there is another book, there's another chapter in this book, and it's it's about to unfold. Why? Because there's a rescue. There's a restoration that's about to happen. There's a commissioning that's about to happen. What is about to happen in John 21 is about to show us the heart of who Jesus is. Pick up with me in John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, if your Bible says the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, the same thing. Different names, different body, same body of water. They are fishermen. There are 11 disciples left. Judas uh, is no longer alive. He's the one who, who deceived and, and turned, turned in Jesus. There's 11 of these guys. Seven of the 11 are fishermen. There are so many times people look at this and they think, man, the, the, the weakness of these guys going fishing. I, I think it's important. Why would, we say, why would some say it's a weakness? Because Jesus had said, I'm going to meet you in Galilee, around this mountainous area. And these men were going to be waiting on Jesus. And a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, these weak-minded guys, they, they were impatient. They went back to fishing. They should have never been fishermen again. They knew they had a new calling. They should have gone out. They already met with the resurrected Jesus before. They've met with him already. And so why would they do this? Now, folks, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, they're fishermen. That's what they do. Number two, it's important to know that they are staying busy. They're doing something. There's, it's something. There's activity. Let's do something. We have to feed ourselves and let's go. So these guys get in a boat. They go out and they journey into, into the water. Verse 4, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Now, I'll stop right here for a second. Uh, there's a lot of conjecture. Why did they not recognize Jesus? Jesus is on the shore. Two reasons could have been. Number one, resurrected body. Looked totally different. And there's still taking some getting used to. Number two, could have been he was just far away. I remember coming home the other day. Harry says to me, he goes, who's fishing in your lake? I said, I have no idea. He says, is this normal? 
you know, is this normal? He says, and, then he says, and I said, well, yeah, it is kind of normal. People show up and go fishing, and gates are open. People get in the boat and go. And, and he said, well, who is it? And I said, I don't know. And so I, I get my binoculars, look out the window, and I'm like, I still don't know. And I put down the binoculars, and he said, you don't know who it is? You don't know just somebody randomly gets in your boat and goes on the lake? I said, yeah, it happens all the time. And, and uh, we didn't know who it was until deductive reasoning led the way to, oh, it's this person. But the reality is, even binoculars, I didn't know who it was. So the very fact is, they're 300 feet away, and he yells out, children, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Now, he said, well, actually, he says this. First of all, he says, children, have you caught anything? They don't know who he is. Calls him out, children. Now, I can't imagine a Jewish fisherman is any different than a fisherman now. But some of you who fish, I can only imagine your reaction as I stand on the shore. Have you caught anything? No, I haven't. And then much less, I'm going to give you some advice. So what happens? Verse 6, Jesus does that. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You're going to find some. I don't know what happened between that statement and the next word. So they cast it. I don't know. I don't know. Murmuring. Like, who is this guy? What is he thinking? In any case, what happened? So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. These boats that fished in this region, this is what you get to do when you research, right? And look at things, seven and a half feet wide. This is not a pull up a net, throw a net in. This is a seven and a half foot haul inside the boat. Um, the net was incredibly heavy. Those of you who grew up on the Gulf Coast, you know what a cast net is. You throw a cast net, catch bait at the buoy. Folks, it is the hardest net ever to learn how to throw. You, you throw this thing, you end up looking like one of the Three Stooges, and you walk away. It takes a long time. Anybody know how to throw a cast net properly? You know what I mean. Oh, Stephen, you know. The, so. Uh, so anyway, you, you know what I mean. It's hard. This is a heavy net taking three to five men to haul this thing in, and then they, they, they throw it over. So they did. They weren't able to haul it in because of the number of fish. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved... Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Stop right here. John has a unique way of describing himself. Do you remember two weeks ago when we had church on the property under a tent? It mentioned we were the resurrection. It said, uh, John said, the disciple ran the fastest and beat the other disciple. John was talking about himself. He proclaimed to be, uh, I guess, twice the fastest man in all of Hebrew era, right? Here, what does he do? He says, that disciple whom Jesus loved. He's talking about himself. But what's interesting is this. It's not a grandiose, braggadocious right. He is getting absolutely theologically correct description. He's giving it to you and me. You know what he says? He says, says, Donna, you, whom Jesus loved... What he says here, when he says, Shannon, whom you are loved by Jesus is, the love that Jesus is giving is the one being identified here. Not the fact that John is saying, I'm the one he loved. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, Simon Peter hears this and does something unusual. He's in his undergarments, which is nothing unusual because your items are made out of wool. You don't want to walk around sweating all the time. So he's about to get in the water. Gets in the water. What does he do? He puts on his coat. And if you're thinking, when you read the Bible, here's what, now what, so what? Why do these things happen? Why did he put on his coat? I don't know. 
again, conjecture maybe, but he puts on his outer garment made of wool, jumps in the water, and starts swimming. Does not make sense. But at any rate, he takes off, he throws himself into the sea, and then pick up in verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off of the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out, of la- out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. John has a unique ability to describe certain things in detail. And in this particular case, he mentions what was made for a meal. Oh, and by the way, there was bread. And then the fact that they counted the fish. Now, you've just, you've been waiting on Jesus to show up. Jesus shows up. You catch a record number of fish. You throw them on the shore. You look at Jesus, resurrected form. Oh, and by the way, one, two, three, four, five, six. You start counting the fish. What are you doing? Why would you count these fish? Don't know. Why 153? Do not know. A more conjecture, by the way. Take this for what it's worth. Don't quote this. Don't write this in your Bible. But the reality is, in the time of in which the, the story was unfolding, there were 153 types of fish known to mankind. So whether it has anything to do with it, I do not know. When I was a, when I was a Baptist pre- preacher, we always joked around about this verse. You know they weren't Baptists because this would have been 1,500 fish. But anyway, so, um, anyway, so you, you move on to verse 12. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew as the Lord. Verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, this is important to know. In case you're walking this story and thinking, this is why, this is why John 21 is there. Jesus is going to go up and forgive Peter. The forgiveness has already been given. He's, Peter and Jesus, in a resurrected form, have already met. So this dialogue that's about to go on is unique. This dialogue is not just forgiveness. It's not just like, hey, um, I'm, I'm, here to, I'm here to push you. There's a lot of, you could go into some places in this. Jesus is about to ask Peter three times, do you love me? Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three, three times. Maybe that's it. Jesus is using a campfire illustration. Because why? Peter denied Jesus over a fire. It, maybe I, the forgiveness has been done. What's about to happen in this exchange is unique. And I hope you come away with one word. I'm going to show you. It's probably the shortest word up here. Verse 15. They had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Look at the beginning of verse 15. Did you notice he says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, calls him, uh, um, Simon, I'm sorry, he says to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, son of John. Those of you who don't come with historical background of, of a biblical understanding Simon was the born name Peter was a given name so when Simon identified Christ Christ Jesus would say 
who do you say that I am? Others say that I'm this guy, this guy. Who do you say that I am? Peter stood up and said, you're the Christ. You're the one. And Jesus said, and your name is now Peter, on whom a church will be built. So he gives him a new name. He had a new name. Why is Jesus calling him this old name? The reality, he's calling him by his legal name. This is the difference between Joe, and if I say Joseph, there's a whole different understanding. There is a, this is an understanding. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Sometimes I highlight verses or words, and I would ask, you know, tell you what they mean, um, a little bit more meaning. When I say these, what's he referring to? It can only be, I guess, two things. Do you love me more than these, the disciples? Do you love me more than these, all these fish? And the fact that you just hold in, by the way, a profitable number. Another reason they probably counted 153, because you actually tagged them when they went to market. So it could have been a reason. So anyway, he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says this, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, well, then tend my sheep. In verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There is, um, again, those of you who grew up in church have heard the story. There's two types of love going back and forth. We're not going to hunker down necessarily on those forms of love. I'll tell you why. There's a, um, there's a love called phileo. I'll just say phileo. Phileo, whatever. If you, you get a Greek study of it, I end up sounding ridiculous when I do it. Phileo love. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's more of a, we all love each other. Agape love is a deeper love. There is a going back and forth. Jesus is saying, do you love me? Peter replies, yes, I love you. I phileo you. Yes, I love you. And so if you're not careful, you can make a whole sermon based on, do you phileo me? Do you agape me? The reality is this was spoken in Aramaic, but it was recorded in Greek. The words were interchangeably used earlier in the book of John. Jesus would mention the phileo love sometimes. And so while those words do, they do play a part this is, in the, this is on the sidebar of conversation. The rea- the, the, where you preach this message is this. Jesus saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The response he's giving can be taken this. Do you agape me? He says, I phileo you. Do you agape me? Do you love me 100%? I love you 70%. Do you agape me? I love you 70%. And then Jesus the third time says, do you love me 70%? Do you even phileo me? Do you even love? Do you? And he's not questioning his love because Peter, you notice at the beginning, he goes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He's emphatically saying this. The third time, what happened? Peter said, Jesus, I'm grieved. You're, you're tearing me up. You're breaking my heart by asking these questions. He's not testing the love, what he's doing is he's stating the case. He's saying this, if you love me, feed my sheep. T- 
tend my lambs. That one word I told you about, the takeaway word, two letters. My sheep. Mine. As a minister, I'm not a shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd. It's a big difference. You are under-shepherds. There's one shepherd. Those are his people. A lot of you come and I come from the same churches. We're different paths and we come from a lot of the same churches. You have never left being his sheep. If you're a part of Creekside, you're not just you're not a Creekside Christian. If you're part of another church, you're not a so and so Christian. You're not a so and so member. Do you know how antithetical that is to everything we stand on the Word of God? When he says, You are my sheep, that means when we interact with other believers, it's not this come alongside and think, well, you know, what, what, you're involved in your church, I'm involved in my church. That is heresy, folks. The reality is we have one shepherd. We honor the shepherd by this, by recognizing the family that we have in each other. Then we work with other churches. I, I, I mentioned uh, Arun. He was at the 9 o'clock service and talking to him, he came up to me and talked about this ministry that's going on, how he loves to be a part of this inner city ministry, what happens. And it was remarkable what he said. He said, yeah, you know, I know they, they go, you know, it's another denomination. It's kind of like they believe in some different things than we do. But the reality is the main statement, the, the main thesis of faith they believe in. He gets it. Don't, don't be a part of that. Well, she goes in her church, he goes in another church. We don't do that. You don't drive by another church and think, well, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder how they're going. Our journey is unique. Our journey is beautiful. The fact is, when we go to see other people at other churches, we're seeing one of ours. Not a family that was so, they're just dear friends. When they went to move on, because we don't have anything from first grade to fifth grade. And they looked at me, you're like, my kids are getting older and they got to get plugged in somewhere. And I remember hugging him and like, man, that's the best move you can make. Why? Because people still follow the will of God. And if it ever affected our friendship, where you went to church, I don't need to be up here preaching because I don't get that. You either get that or you make a cult out of it. The reality is we are part of a collective body of believers that we come alongside and we pick up where we leave off. And maybe one day we cross paths again in ministry, but we move forward together. And so you see that whole discourse, and it was powerful. And then Jesus is about to predict Peter's death. What's about to happen here seems profound. It seems almost like, it seems almost cruel. Why would he be saying this? Walk Look with me at, at 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Those two words, follow me, resound in my mind because I tell you what he says to him. He says, Peter, you're going to die. 
you're going to die, and they're going to stretch your hands out. They're going to dress you, which is what they would have done mockingly before they killed somebody. He says, while you are young, you can do some things, but before you get old, before this happens, and you have to remember, Peter is walking away from this thinking several things. Number one, I'm not going to die young. Number two, I'm going to die for Christ. And it's going to give me a confidence. Peter, as a matter of fact, would be arrested. He's still a young Peter. He's thrown into a jail. Two guards put on him. What what does Peter do? He falls asleep. Why? Because he goes, I'm young. Jesus told me I'm not going to die until I'm old. He goes to sleep. You talk to a soldier who's been in in war, they'll tell you they stay up for three days. Hit a 24-hour deep sleep. As soon as they get out of it, their body just collapses. You don't sleep when you feel like you're in imminent danger. Peter, I'm just going to go to sleep. And he did. And he was rescued. And he didn't die at that moment. Now, whenever, um, sometimes we quote what we call tradition. Tradition is this. Writings, chronicles, journals, they're not inerrant scripture. So we believe in inerrant scripture, like the Bible. We believe that to be the system of truth. There's a lot of correlating books that have been written that talk about things. Like, this happened to this guy, this happened. We happen to know what happened to a lot of disciples and that. But it's not scripture. But you could look at it. Interesting, those who don't believe us, who attack the system of truth that we believe in the Bible, don't always attack the historical documents that pretty much affirm everything we talk about. But in this case, historical documents written in the 4th century have indicated that Peter died by crucifixion, but he requested that he be crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy enough to be crucified in the manner Jesus was crucified. So, the fact is, that those two words, follow me, are incredible. Can you imagine the Jesus that you've been, you, you think you, you've neglected? That you think you've, you've, you've doubted too many times? Says to you, I want you to follow me. I want you to come with me. Keep looking with me. And what's about to happen in verse 20 um, is going to sound confusing. Is this going to, again, if you were to write the Bible, you wouldn't put this in there. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus look to Peter, say, follow me. Peter surely feels a a renewed sense of spirit. I'm going to make this. I'm going to do good. And then what does Peter do? He looks back. Watch what he says here in verse 20 and following. Peter turned, saw the disciple from whom Jesus loved, following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during his supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So he's, again, he's talking about, talking about John here. He says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. Verse 23. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not going to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die, but... If it is my will you remain until I come, what is that to you? In layman's terms, this is what Peter's going, what about this guy? What about this man? And Jesus says, what is it to you? This could be a takeaway for you. Have you ever looked at the, what you think is the perfect family? Like, that is the perfect family. Like that, the one, they, were, they have everything. Folks, I have been in uh, people, that's what I do. You know, not really smart, academically <laughs> gifted, but I love people. Going to homes of people, meet people. There's not one perfect family out there. They may look it. I mean, they may look perfect. There's not one. We're all jacked up. Somewhere. 
Some quarrels. Something's going on. And the beauty is, guess what? That's great news. We don't need one more functional Savior in our life to compare ourselves to. Jesus says, what is it with them? That's okay. I remember when we got started in here, I was thinking, oh, man, what are we going to do? You know, like, well, what, what do we, you know, other churches, they have vans and, like, they have, like, you know, satellites. <laughs> I don't know, but they have all kind of things. You know, what are we going to do? We, we, well, you know, we're... Other places are giving us paper to print out our, our bulletins on and uh, thinking, this is going to be it. And how foolishly sinful of me. Jake, what is it to you? It's when you walk in here and you don't feel like you can be real and you feel like a fraud. You're sitting in the back of the person is singing with their eyes closed and you're thinking, I don't even feel saved. You walk in here thinking, I... I have not, I can't even compare to the people around me. Jesus says, to you. What is that to you? I told you to follow me. Follow me. The reason 21 is in here is because Jesus has come to show something. He's come to show, to look at Peter and say, stop putting on your cloak and trying to impress me. Your acts of righteousness do nothing. They do nothing. The fact is, in your failures, you'll meet me more than your successes. The fact is, it's my grace that grows you, not you trying to act religious. Don't stop, take off that coat. Stop trying to act that way. I look at the next, the the last of the two, two verses, and... And I keep thinking, here we're coming up to a Peter that is still trying to prove himself. Folks, I want to ask you a question. And we'll ask it week after week, I guess, if we, we think about this. Are you still trying to prove yourself? Are you still trying to prove who you are? And that tomorrow you'll be a better little Christian? When you think of those words, follow me, what does it mean to you? I mean, I'm trying to peel this onion back. I'm not a trained counselor, but this is what counselors do. They try to just ask you, what does this mean? How, does this, how do you feel this? I want to ask you this. When I say, follow me, when Jesus were to say, follow me, what does that mean? Does your mind immediately go to performing? I'm going to read more scripture. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to give more. I'm going to, I'm going to attend more. I... Is that where your mind is going? Follow me. Or does it mean to follow who he is? And watch what happens. So as a minister, I get asked to do a lot of weddings. You get asked to do weddings and people come together like, hey, would you do my wedding? And I have this thing where I, I generally only marry people I know. Because being a college pastor for 15 years, you know a lot of people. They're especially getting married, Right. And you get a chance to look at weddings. You can't wait. Like, I can't wait to do this wedding. But then you inevitably get the one that comes up, would you do our wedding? And you're like, um, yeah, like, like, what's going on? Tell me about it. Tell me about what's up. I go, well, this is what we are. I mean, we've been living together for like three years. And I'm like, well, how about like, let's walk through this. What does it mean to, to, to be married? What does it mean? And then you start talking about what it means about how to grow that. And then all of a sudden, 
I as a minister, what am I going to do? Look at a person and say, no. Is that following him? Or am I going to walk with a person in love and say, hey, let's look and see what marriage looks like. Let's see what regaining second purity looks like. Let's see what, let's see what we can learn together in the Bible. That's why, you know, when Bob and Martha, we started doing premarital counseling and talking to young marrieds, I remember talking to you and you're like, oh yeah, we get this all the time. You know how refreshing that is? Because what I didn't want to work with is legalism that says, this is how things are. This is the way things ought to be. You make religion black and white, it's going to be all performance-based. And what the gray is takes work. Legalism says, no. No, that's sin. Anybody can point a finger and say, no. Jesus, when he says, follow me, who takes the time to make a fire, to cook bread, to cook fish, to, lay, to, say, to follow people and say, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Then feed my sheep. That means take time with them. Work with them. Guide them. Now, I remember at a, wedding, at a wedding last night, I mentioned this to you guys before, I think, this couple. There I looked and I saw Mike and Ashley Coulet, who would have easily come in here and, and tell you part of their testimony. I remember Mike bunked up with his girl at the time. He's like, yeah, you know, like, you know, talking about purity, about, okay, listen, you know, this is what's going on, but, you know, it's regained a second sense of just what it means to be married, what it means to, to come together in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a godly way. And he rejected me. He's like, get out of here, you're crazy. And then what happened? I walked to my house. There's this odd-looking luggage. And this guy moves in my house. All this kind of weird hair care product in the bathroom. And I'm like, what's happening? And it was Mike. He said, all right, preacher man, I'm here. I moved in. I'm like, is it? And at his wedding, at his wedding, he's standing there and he blushes as she comes down the aisle. See, in the gray matter takes work. And everything I have to do, I preface with this. When Jesus says, follow me, I have to ask myself, Lord, what would you do right now? What would you have me do? And everything he did, it was hard. And it took love. But on the other side of that is victory. Not only and what we get to celebrate, but they get to celebrate. Go to a football field, watch a practice. Watch the guy run into the end zone. No one cheers, doesn't spike a ball, because it's practice. But in the game, with 70,000 screaming fans, you your demise. When people who've been training for a dozen years to stop you in your advance, in the midst of breaking through all that, you hit the end zone, there's a sense of victory. There's a sense of saying, because of the opposition, I made it. And so when Jesus says, follow me, feed my people, tend to them, love them, this is the calling that you and I have. This is what makes it different than religion. This is what makes it different than self-righteousness. Because self-righteousness and, and, and religious righteousness, it never goes away. It still makes you put on a wool coat and jump in the water and look silly. It still makes it so easy to point and say, no, we don't do that. And you pump yourself on the chest and you walk away and you say, this is how we stand. No, that is not 
the Jesus that I know who says, follow me. That in everything we do, we stand for what is right, but we live in what is right. And there's a difference. You love on people, you gather together people, and you restore people. The same way Jesus restored the heroes that we study. This is who we are. For God's sake, self-righteousness would, would just plow us in the face every day. Thinking somehow our works will get us out of this mess. Our efforts will get us out of this mess. Peter, stop looking so ridiculous in your wet tunic. Understand you didn't need to show off. The meal was already made. The forgiveness was already had. All Jesus wanted to say was this. Follow me and feed my sheep. The last two verses. This is the, verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Verse 25, last verse. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that an amazing thought? I wonder what went on around the campfire. You know the gathering after the gathering? Have you ever had, you know what I mean? The Thanksgiving crowd leaves and there's like six of you left and you talk and you hang out. There's a campfire and when you camp out, you, those are the times. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. What was it like? What did they talk about? The mission trips I've been on seem demonic, possessed people. I mean, you got Carrie back here who comes up and invites people to a, um, a cookout at his house. When we began the book of John, you were fighting for your life a month and a half on life support after an accident. I have seen some things. No one saw things like these guys. It's when John, almost with a grin, takes the ink. And he writes, I suppose the world couldn't handle all the books if everything was written. And I guarantee you had everything to do with people. Everything. The love, the kindness, the mercy shown. And so when Jesus says to you, follow me, guess what we have an opportunity to do? Show you what love looks like. Remember, any church can be a good place to succeed. Any church, any cult, anybody can have a great place to succeed. But what makes a Christian church different is a church that makes it a great place to fail. That when you fall down, we are with you. That when you take a step and you stumble, we are with you. When you don't always agree, we are with you. We don't waver from the road in which we are on as a path of Christ believers but we come together and we pick you up. And you understand and you will grasp that in your life, all the failures that you ever thought to find you were the precursors to experiencing true faith. You'll experience him more in your failures than you ever will in your successes. This is the beauty we have. And I close with this. Peter knows God loves him but he's still trying to prove himself to him. In what areas are you still trying to prove to God that you love him?
and give them up. Put them away. Put them away. He says this, follow me. Follow who he is. When Jesus said, I'm going to give you something greater than I am, he gave us the Holy Spirit. You as a believer have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. He will guide you. He'll walk you by your bed and you'll know to get on your knee and just go to him. You'll grab the steering wheel of your car. You'll know immediately before you go anywhere, God, just talk to him. He'll direct you in all those areas. Follow him and stop the performance-based Christianity. You're never meant to bear that cross. You were never meant to bear that burden. And I hope these nine weeks of John have been something, encouragement to you. To walk through these verses and, and, and to have you guys so patient like you've been, I appreciate it and thank you for that. Um, there's, there are two types of people in here. Those who believe in the Lord, trust the Savior, those who do not. Those who do not always know you're a place of welcome. I hope you walk in here and I hope you grasp that there is a love that is emitted from people from all different backgrounds. There's people with money. There's people broke as a joke in here. There's people who are intelligent. There's people not so intelligent. There's people who all, all walks. We're all brought here for one reason. Because we're family. We're a flock of sheep. And we come here in order to go out and help and assist in others to know the great gospel of Jesus Christ. If you find another option that's better, you have to point it out to me. Religion, we've messed it up. We've mucked it up in a lot of different areas. And for that, I'm sorry. But for those who walk in here never really trusting the Lord as a Savior, we don't have a walk-forward invitation because we believe the best minister you could ever have is the person that invited you. We believe here that the home is the greatest church in ministry. We just happen to gather corporately together. But for those of you who are believers, the second group, lay down the burden. Take off the tunic and don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. Stop feeling like you're chore-driven to, to read this much and to read this much and to pray this much. Sometimes the most effective Bible scripture reading I could have ever done is a verse. It's just to meditate on that verse. And sometimes the greatest prayer is to just go silent and be still and know that he's God. Stop trying so hard. No longer proving yourself. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for today. The opportunity we have to love you and grow in you as a, as a believer through the study of your word, through the reflection of our heart. God, there are those in here who may not know you as Savior that, Lord, there's um, a lot of things in our mind that keep us from knowing you, thinking we'll be judged, thinking we've messed up too much, thinking we don't know, even know enough or know what to do. But, God, you would give us the ability to just run towards you, to see you, and to have you pour into us and let us grasp those things we cannot grasp. Father, I encourage that person, if as a person wants to know you as their Savior, to ask someone who brought them. And ask one of us. 
Lord, if it be somebody in here who's always struggled with feeling like they're comparing themselves to other people, Father, they're comparing themselves to what they think should be done, that, Lord, they just relax and understand that, Father, our goal, our mission is to follow you. Making disciples in that, sure, but following you first. Making us the greatest disciple of you. Learning out of love. Learning out of forgiveness and above all restoration. Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.